Let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 118. This morning we're going to pause from our regular Exodus study and we're going to examine what the church has historically referred to as Palm Sunday. And next Sunday we'll do the same thing with, with Easter, Resurrection Sunday. Um, and we will pause here to consider Palm Sunday. But if we're pausing to consider Palm Sunday, why do you have me turn to Psalm 118? Well, there's, there's three reasons that I think you'll see in the text. First, this Psalm foreshadows that which is fulfilled at the triumphal entry. But secondly, this is the psalm that was sung by the crowds in part or in whole as Jesus marched into Jerusalem on that day. But thirdly, this text explains the spiritual significance of the king's march to Jerusalem. It wasn't just about Jesus coming to Jerusalem one day. There's something more rich and beautiful here. And so um, we're going to reference verses 1 through 2 and then 19 through 29. But we believe that all of God's word is his word. And so I'm going to read the whole context of the passage for you. And then we will turn to study it. Here's God's word. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord's on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among the thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. 
And now, Father, as we pause to study this passage, we pray that you would give us the ears to hear what your Spirit would teach to your people. And we would not be those who are filled or puffed up with knowledge, but that by grace we would know the Christ revealed in this psalm. And would you, through him, teach us of your steadfast love. In your hand, we pray that you would wield a sinful, ordinary, common, frail, crooked stick like me to point this narrow way to our King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. These aren't disconnected. We've been studying the Exodus, ten plagues, the Passover. Last week we saw God's parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of God's enemies for His glory and the good of His children. Those acts of deliverance were meant to be remembered and celebrated throughout the history of the nation of Israel. And so if you don't know this already, the Psalms were the hymn book for the people of God in the Old Testament. So when you wonder what people sang in worship in the Old Testament, it was the Psalms. Over time, Psalm 113 to 118 came to be called the Egyptian Hallel. Hallel means praise, and Egyptian comes, of course, from these six psalms having been sung at celebration of the Passover because, of course, the Passover was meant to be marked and remembered and celebrated for God's deliverance, and the themes fit really well. Psalm 114 speaks of the exodus itself. Psalm 113 speaks of God lifting the downtrodden. Psalm 115, a call for corporate worship, a a, a summons, don't return to idols, let's keep moving towards our Father. Psalm 116, a psalm of personal thanks to God for his salvation over impending death, sort of like at the Passover, sort of like at the Red Sea. Psalm 117, God's world vision, praise the Lord all nations. Psalm 118, a festive procession as one worshiper leads God's people up to God's throne. Here's a Moses-like figure who is marching God's people up to the throne, but he's not just a Moses, he's a king. Jesus and his disciples in the upper room following the Passover custom would have sung Psalm 113, 114, 115, and 116 before they took the Passover. And then likewise, after supper, they would have sung 117 and 118, which means that Psalm 118 was the song that was likely sung, the the last song in Jesus' worship with his friends before he became himself the Passover lamb. His week in Jerusalem began with this psalm, in a sense, and it ended with it as well. The crowds sang of Jesus as he walked in on a donkey's colt. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a fitting song for an exodus. And they put it on their tongues, hoping for a new exodus. They had no idea what they were singing. No clue at all, content with their own agenda for Jesus to do something less than what God had intended. Well, if we could just get back to the glory days of Israel, God would give us a king that would free us from Roman occupation. How many Christians today would be completely content if Jesus would simply fulfill their own agenda? How many would be content, willing to settle for less than God offers? 
They sang Psalm 118 in hopes of a new exodus, and everyone missed it except Jesus. The Christ sang this psalm with fulfillment on his tongue. That's why I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing a new exodus, a true Passover, a real deliverance. Follow me. I'll usher you in to the presence of God. I'll gain you access to his steadfast love, which really is forever. Follow me. How many Christians would say, no, Jesus, I'm content if you'll just help me with my problems If you'll just come along beside me in my plan and give me happiness and peace and prosperity and occasional affirmation. Jesus says you're still missing it. I'm offering to eternally secure a righteousness that you have never known and you could not get for yourself. Follow me into the temple straight into the altar of God while I lay myself down to pay for your sins. So that you can finally taste that God's steadfast love really is forever. And modern Christians would say, wait, Jesus. Wait a minute. Before we get started, I'm content. If you'll just help me and advise me. Provide me some low-level security in this life. A few victories here and there. Make me happy. Give me people who will love me and protect me and, and respect me. Give me financial security. Heal me when I'm sick. I'm content if you'll just provide me a church on on my terms with some friends like me that I like and, and things for my children to do. Jesus, I'd be totally content if you would just affirm and empower my dreams of my vision of myself. In Psalm 118, the Christ says, that's not enough. Follow me, and I will take you to the Father. Through the ministry of King Jesus, God invites you into his steadfast love. And so our passage breaks down into three points. His demand answered, his name vindicated, his exaltation foretold. We start with his demand answered. The the psalm begins like a drumbeat or a bell ringing. The words of those first four verses echo in the refrain, and it's really a refrain that our hearts deeply long to be true, don't we? God's steadfast love endures forever. I wonder if you need to hear that today. It's true. And yet, for some of you, it seems more like a principle to know, uh, applied to other people, but it is, at some level, hard to believe for yourself. And so, the psalm begins with a repetition, which is so important, because in your own head, there are other things which beat like a drum. You are painfully aware. You're better, in fact, at remembering your own sins and your patterns And you're weary of hearing yourself say again, and I did it again? Then you are remembering that God offers to love you in spite of all of those sin patterns. In fact, everything that consumes your thoughts and your worries and your fears, God says it's temporal. It has a short shelf life, but God's steadfast love endures forever. And we all agree with that in, hist- in theory, in principle. Sure, God possesses a love which can last into eternity. But your heavenly Father knows 
that it is hard for you to believe that God's steadfast love for you lasts into eternity. Here's the substance. Here's the reason why this is a psalm about Christ. I'm going to move kind of rapidly just for your own sake. Verse 5, this single voice seems to take over. And in one sense, the voice is really ordinary. He speaks like a person who's faced real-life struggles. And in another sense, you recognize his voice is extraordinary. He's a person of deep faith who knows the intimate presence of God. He knows what it is to be secure in Yahweh. And then at verse 10, his voice seems to change with with kingly language. Like he's the one who represents his people surrounded by nations nations of enemies in God's name. I cut them off. I've been surrounded. I've been pushed. I've been pressed hard by enemies. God saved this man. God's right hand upheld him. Verse 17 and verse 18, the the, the singing king knows that he will not die, but he will live. In order to continue to recount the glorious deeds of the Lord, he's been disciplined by God's hand so that he will know more certainly that that in the Lord he is secure. Now, if if the psalm ended at verse 18, it would still be a messianic psalm. It would still be a psalm about the Christ who didn't die but lives, disciplined and shaped by his Father, but not given over to death. Your heavenly Father knows that there are just moments when you struggle to believe that his steadfast love for you personally lasts forever. So would you picture with me the king in verse 19? He stands at the gates of God's city and he makes a demand that you and I in our sin could never make on our own. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Here's an entire congregation outside the city's gates. And there is only one worshiper among us who is worthy of making such a demand to the the God of heaven. And how gracious is he that he turns to each of us and he says, follow me then. Verse 20, this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. And you and I look left and we look right. And we say, I'm not righteous. I can't enter this gate. Only the righteous can go through there, and I know what I've been like this week. I know the strange blending of curses and blessings that have come from my tongue. I know that I've spent much of my life fearing God and yet running from Him. I know the paradox of my love for God and yet my toying with silly idols. I know that my thoughts swing from things which are utterly good to things which are disgustingly wicked. You can't enter this gate on your own. You just can't. And so the options are we stand out here and we just watch as the king goes ahead. But the king's already entered. Psalm 118 is in this sense a kind of summary of, uh, it's a commentary of Luke 19. Where at the triumphal entry, Jesus enters Jerusalem 
on Palm Sunday, but it's so much more than that, isn't it? It's a description of what has happened spiritually in heavenly places. God has opened for us a way to the Father, access that we could never have had. But then even more than that, it is descriptive of a coming day when you and I are welcomed spiritually and physically into the new Jerusalem, into the new heavens and the new earth. And God's invitation is this, I cannot welcome you on the perceptions of your own personal goodness, but only if you will trust my son who has marched through the gates of righteousness on his own. One commentator said, it is the glory of our faith that the king entered the gates of righteousness wholly on his merits and he was perfected in his own suffering. It's the crowning glory of this servant king that he makes entry into the gates of righteousness on behalf of all those royal subjects who would grab his coattails. Hebrews 2.10, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Suffering for his own sins? No. Suffering for yours? That you may ride his coattails through the gates of righteousness. Hebrews 9.24, Christ has entered not into, the, into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You're invited to walk into the presence of Almighty God based on the demand of the King by faith. In the one who makes this demand, and the demand is answered. Look at it, verse 21. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Who's speaking? Is it the king or is it you and me? Just to show you how interconnected the Bible is. Psalm 118, verse 14 and 21, and then also a later portion of this psalm draw language back to Exodus 15, where we would be today if I didn't stop from the Red Sea. The song which Moses sings after the parting of the Red Sea, another occasion where God's people are in fact saved from their enemies. And so there's a sense in which Jesus can sing of God answering his own voice and giving entrance into his heavenly court. But like Moses and the people of Israel, you and I get to join our voices with the king and say, you've become my salvation. Through the ministry of King Jesus, God invites you into his steadfast love. His demand answered. Secondly, his name vindicated. It starts there in verse 21. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Have you heard that before? This particular phrase is quoted many times through the Bible. And so if we just start with this first context, you simply point your finger back to verse 10 and following, and you recognize that the psalmist was surrounded by nations, and in the name of Yahweh, this king cut them off. And verse 21 is really the first hint that we have that those nations were the builders themselves. They were the opposing nations who thought of themselves as as wise and strong. And so in that first context, 
The builders of world empires looked at little Israel and they said, you're not even worth our time. We would reject you. You have no power on the world stage. The psalmist, the the king says, no. God chose Israel to be a part of his world plan. The one nation on the face of the earth in which the God of heaven made a covenant relationship. And like so much of scripture, there is another layer to the wonder of what the Lord has written. King David could also speak of his adversaries as the builders of Israel. The movers and shakers of the nation who never would have chosen the youngest son of Jesse to be their king. This little shepherd boy, an unlikely stone upon which the Lord could build the nation of Israel. In either case, it's marvelous that the Lord chooses for his purposes those things that the world would never choose. Was this really meant to be fulfilled with King David? Is that enough? I mean, you know his record. He's he's an adulterer and a murderer, and his hands are so defiled by the blood of war that David isn't even eligible to build the temple at the end of his life, let alone usher God's people through a gate of righteousness. The prophet Isaiah chapter 28 picks up this psalm and he sees the stone as God's gift to the people because the very builders, the wise and powerful of Isaiah's day, they all live under a shelter of lies and falsehood. And so Isaiah says, this cornerstone is to be the promised Messiah. Old Testament Jews would have read Psalm 118 as a promise of the coming Christ. Which is why in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus, on the heels of the parable of the wicked tenants, quotes Psalm 118. He quotes Isaiah 28 and he says, the wise and powerful of your day have completely missed me. Therefore, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who really will bear fruit. Romans 9 says the exact same thing. Because Israel didn't produce fruit as God's faithful son, because they tripped and fell over the Christ, the Gentiles, who never would have understood Psalm 118, who never would have had Isaiah 28, are sitting here in a church in Auburn, Alabama, and have embraced this gift of a precious stone. Ephesians 2, 20. The gospel itself is built on the foundation, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. 1 Peter chapter 2, God has laid this stone in Zion and those who follow Christ are being built up into a spiritual house. Those who reject him stumble and fall. Here's one of the deep comforts of God's word. David didn't know Isaiah. Isaiah never met Matthew. And Paul and Peter never met David or Isaiah. But God wrote his word through these men to tell of the glorious vindication of the name of Jesus and of his grace to sinners like you and me. What you have in your lap is reliable because the Lord himself has woven his hand and written his very word down through these human instruments. 
when Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the religious leaders, the cultural elites were angry that he did not reject the praise of his disciples. And yet through the course of the Passover week, the crowds themselves turned on Jesus because he really wasn't going to be the political leader that they hoped. And they hung him on a cross as a stone rejected by men. But Jesus' name was vindicated at the resurrection. And then not many days after Jesus is crucified and resurrected and ascended into heaven, his disciples, John and Peter, are arrested. They did this wicked thing. They healed a crippled man. And then they stand in front of the high priest. And the, the high priest and his family are furious at these two boys. For they are declaring that the resurrected Christ is the Messiah. You talk about a name vindicated. Peter. An ignorant fisherman says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. You're the builders. And he's become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Talk about a name vindicated. Charles Spurgeon said, they reckoned him to be nothing. But Jesus is Lord of all. In raising him from the dead, the Lord God exalted him to be the head of the church, the pinnacle of her glory and beauty. And since then, He's become the confidence of the Gentiles of all people. Why does it matter to you and me that the name of Jesus should be vindicated? Because there's no other name under heaven by which any of us have any hope of salvation. By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I are granted a steadfast love of the Lord forever. Who can bring any charge against you? I know what your mind does. I know what Satan accuses you of. Satan would love for you to be in despair. He would subtly whisper to you, could God ever love you? Surely he's growing tired. Surely he's had enough of your sins again and again. He's almost to the end. But Christ's name vindicated assures your name vindicated You are infinitely worse than you think you are, worse than Satan could ever accuse you of being, but bound up in the vindicated name of the righteous king, you're more loved than you ever dared to hope. Through the ministry of King Jesus, God invites you into a steadfast love. His demand answered, his name vindicated. We close with his exaltation foretold. I'm getting so fired up, I gotta have a little sip of water. The psalm pictures a parade, a festival marching into Jerusalem after some great deliverance. It's a special day. It's the day that the Lord has made. It's one of the reasons that this song was sung at Passover. You and I picture a group of worshipers marching behind the king into the temple courts and they're shouting to the Lord, Psalm 118, 25, save us we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. While another group of 
believers are waiting in the temple and they shout with blessings as the king arrives. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He's made his light to shine upon us. Derek Kidner, who's, I always tell you this, he's my favorite Old Testament commentator. Uh, He says that those in the ceremony could never have imagined that one day these events would enact themselves again on the road to Jerusalem, this time unrehearsed and unliturgical with an explosive force. Hosanna. Which is to quote, excuse me, Psalm 118.25, Hosanna, save we pray And then, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so, this festive parade into Jerusalem takes place on many levels. Psalm 118 records the first and it foretells the second, which we read in Luke 19. But then there's another level. What do you make of verse 27? Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. The pilgrimage, the march up to the temple ends at the altar. And these Old Testament worshipers who sang Psalm 118 envisioned themselves carrying a lamb, a sacrifice to the altar. They would bind him up and hang him from one corner of the altar to the other. And a bleeding lamb would hang there on the altar offered to God as a sacrifice. Friends, on Palm Sunday, God's reality broke through the symbols and shadows of Psalm 118. So that as one scholar says, the horns of the altar became the arms of the cross. And the festival itself in Christ fulfilled as a Passover lamb. The psalm then returns, doesn't it? To one voice and verse 28. But you wonder, is it the king who speaks? Or is it you and me? Who looks at the Christ in faith and says, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You're my God, I'll extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Really, his steadfast love endures forever. As glorious as it was to see Jesus on Palm Sunday, it will be infinitely more glorious to see him march up to his eternal throne in the new Jerusalem. Leading the likes of you and me past the gates of righteousness into the steadfast love of the Lord, which really does endure forever. What a great comfort. Here's your king. Let's pray. And now, Father, we ask that the richness of this gospel story would move and comfort the hearts of your people and that those who do not know you would come and embrace the Lord Jesus And those who know you would be nourished and fed again on Christ. We thank you so much for your word, which from beginning to end testifies to your great story of salvation in Christ. To you be the glory. Amen.